following programming is sponsored by Six Feet Over Under Productions. The views expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of this station, its management, or Beasley Best Media Group. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM, part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, I'm going to throw it right to you. Um, Hi. Are you buying what the Phillies are selling? What that they might that, that they're set they're selling playoff tickets now? Absolutely. Are well, they they are selling hope. I don't know if I have that kind of hope, but look, look, the Phillies have, from what I understand, the Phillies have not made the playoffs in a decade, and are the have the longest drought in the National League. Okay. Yes, I want to believe that it's coming to an end. Okay. But there's there's moments in almost every game, even during the six game win streak where I'm sitting there going, this bubble's about to burst, that it, it, it can't last as long. You lost Reese Hoskins for the season. Uh, Aaron Nola doesn't look like your fourth best pitcher right now. I mean, Nola's not pitching this weekend, and I'm going, good. So you have Gibson, who's got a below three ERA, Ranger Suarez, who's got a below two ERA, and then Wheeler on Sunday. Those are your three best pitchers right now. And yet they're 69 and 64 mm-hmm. with 29 games remaining in the season. They've won six in a row. They didn't have a single win streak of six games or more in 2019 or 2020. Yep. They scored seven runs or more in seven straight games and have an 11 game win streak for the first time in 88 years. Yes. Yep. And an 11 game win streak against the NL East and are now two games back of the Braves after sweeping the Nationals, heading into a weekend series against the Marlins where Kyle Gibson, as you mentioned, Ranger, and Zach Wheeler will be on the mound. And is, is there any single human being that isn't sitting there going, they're going in to face the Marlins and they're going to lose two or three? Well, that's definitely. The, <laughs> see, that's the problem. Is that, is that you, you, Jeez, you Jeff. The, the sky is falling. It is that constant feeling now of this group of Phillies because of the bullpen, because of the injuries, just it just doesn't seem like it's in the cards and they were out of it you know they had that fall two weeks ago and then all of a sudden now they're coming back and winning games and it looks like they're doing it through smoke and mirrors i mean other than bryce harper jt hasn't been playing consistently the only person who's been playing consistently is bryce harper who's not protected gene cigar has played all right all right but yeah. not consistently great. Look, nobody on the team has been consistently great. And yet with guys like Nick Maton and Raphael Marchand, they're winning games right now. Can they keep that up that with 29 games left headed down the stretch? Do you believe? Okay. I hope I don't believe. Cohen, How's that? I believe, I believe the email said that you can reserve your seat for the first and second round of the playoffs, which mm-hmm. is if you buy tickets for next season but are you reserving your seat for the first and second round of the playoffs mind you they're also only two and a half games back in the wild card yes because i because i hope yes because i hope but i don't believe there's there are different words 
Okay. So it's the hopeful Jeff, not the realistic Jeff. Yeah. I mean, I want to believe, as they say in the X-Files, but I know I just dated myself and half the people don't even know what the X-Files are. But this is the, I haven't been out of my house in 10 days, but I'm feeling better and really want to leave my house, Jeff. 10 days? It's been two weeks, dude. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm upright enough that I said it's okay for you to stream this, but... <laughs> yeah, that ends up happening. We'll get back. But that to- doesn't mean that my head is clear. So, so, so it's very possible what I'm saying to you right now, I may change once I get become more lucid. In fairness, when you think you're lucid, it still doesn't mean that you say good things. So let's just... I'm not going to disagree with you. We've got somebody on the line who could certainly break it all down and, and analyze how you're feeling and, and tell you how to feel about who it. Who might that be? On. Well, why don't you bring him on and, and introduce our guest who we're going to have join us today and, and break down a little baseball and a little bit of the you, mental... You just side. said that I'm not lucid, but I'll take a shot at who I think is, is on... I believe that Don Carmen, former Philly and current counselor of sports psychology to uh, ball players, is that who we have on the line? That would be correct. Yes. <laughs> I just play the guessing game with Jeff. I don't really tell him what's going on. I just, you know, throw it to <laughs> see what goes on with it. Don, thanks so much for giving a few minutes to to join the show and talk about everything today. Yeah, yeah, you got it. Uh, but no guessing games for me. I'm not good at them. All right. Well, that's the only one who gives pop quizzes. Exactly. So, so Don, we wanted to have you on because there's so much going on in the world of sports psychology, and I don't think it's ever been more important than it is now. But I, but I did want to just start with a Philly story because I read it and I had never seen it before. And Jason and I have spent years interviewing the Phillies prospects as they come up and as they make it to the major leagues. And when I saw the story of your major league debut and your, your interaction with Darren Dalton, it really kind of touched me. And I, I was wondering if you could share it for our listeners, what that experience was and what Darren Dalton said to you. I am on my very first game. I believe it, 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 what the story was is that you came out for your first major league save, I think. Well, that was one where, um, yeah, I, I'd been up for three weeks because we were, um, yeah, we, I'd been up for three weeks, but I had not pitched in any games. Um, because the Phillies, it was 83, they were in a pennant chase. and, And when we were in Chicago, they clinched it and we had two games left. John Denny started one and won his 19th game, I think it was, and they weren't going to let me mess that one up. Um, I think we had two more after that, um, and we were playing the Pirates, and they called down and said, you know, get get Carmen up. And I thought it was just another day of, because it was three to two and going into the ninth inning. I said, get Carmen up, and I thought, yeah, they're just placating me like always, and I'm not going to the game with a save on the line. And so I get up and start flipping the ball, and then they call back and said, he's in. I couldn't breathe. I just absolutely froze right there. And so they, I'm actually going in. I'm in a 3-2 ball game. There are 48,000 people at the ballpark. It's just, and they're all screaming and yelling. It's so loud because everybody's so excited going into the playoffs, right? And... um so I warm up. I don't remember the rest of my warm up, but I remember jogging in from right field in Veterans Stadium. And I always jog in all the way to the mound, but I couldn't make it. 
I, I, I guess I wasn't breathing. I couldn't breathe. I, I stopped right by Juan Samuel at, at, um, at second base, and I bent over trying to catch my breath at second base. Um, and just and Sammy started laughing at me because he knew it's, it's it was very nerve wracking, and and they brought Darren in the same at the same time, um, and he had been my catcher for years, and you know and all summer he was my catcher in Double A, so he knew me really well, and um, so I'm standing, you know, I, get, I finally I walk up to the mound trying to catch my breath. I don't even remember what was said or whatever they hand me the ball. I don't remember my warm-up pitches at all, and I just remember standing on the mound and not moving and just frozen. I couldn't remember what to do. I was just standing there staring. I, it was in my stretch, and I was just staring at, at Dutch behind the plate, just and I, and, then, and I remember saying to myself, I don't remember, I don't know what to do. And then I said, well, you can't just stand there. This is one of my thoughts, right? And, and the place was so loud. I remember feeling like the whole ground was shaking. And I re realized later it was me that was shaking. And I was standing on the mountain and said, well, you can't just stand here. You got it. Well, I said, okay, we'll just start moving and see what happens. That was my self-talk at that point. And I threw the first pitch, fastball down and away for strike one. And then threw the next one down and away, strike two, because that's where I lived in those days, down and away, right? So now, now I went from from being scared to – I'm going to strike out the first batter I ever face. Like it was the light came on. It was that getting past that fear that just, it wasn't just nervousness. This was like my freezing fear. And I wound up not striking him out and I wound up getting, getting the save. I, had a, I think it was a three up and three down inning. Um, I had an 0-2 count on all three hitters and got a save in my first outing. And it was comforting because I knew Darren knew me, and I didn't have to think about what pitches to throw. I just was going to do whatever he said, which was kind of what my whole career with him turned out to be. Um, so our interactions were always, always uh, him. He was just a leader. He was a great leader, and it was just so – reassuring to know that you knew you not only had a good baseball man behind there, but a good person who understood people and what makes them go. And, I, and my, what you may have been referring to was, was a game that I was down four to, four to nothing in the first inning and Bonds had just hit a double off the wall and Darren Dalton uh, was catching. Um, and so when I was in the rotation and four nothing, and I haven't gotten anybody out yet. And Dutch started ambling back toward the mound over, and after getting another ball, and he wouldn't throw it. And I just kept thinking, throw the ball, would you please just throw the ball? So because I'm so mad, you know, I can't even see. And he walked out to the mound, held the ball up over my glove, very slowly put it down into my glove. As he was doing it, he said, I don't know what you're doing out here, but it's not working. 
<laughs> and he turned around and walked away, right? And what he did was made me, well, first of all, I got mad. I, was like, I know it's not working. I'm the one over backing up third. And so I then went off the back of the mound, still hot under the collar. And, and I said, so what are you doing? He said, well, you're throwing first pitch fastball, and they're jumping on every one of them. And it threw 17 breaking balls in a row, got out of the inning, got, and then wound up throwing seven shutout innings from that point on and lost four to three. But, but the point of that is, you see, that he knew he had to engage my mind. You've got to start thinking out here. You've got to, you've got to change something. And, and sometimes he would just come out and, you know, and, and jump on me about something. But it was just such, we had just such a great relationship. And he knew me so well that he knew what to say when he came out. Joe was great. So, so as a as an older Don Carmen who now speaks to other athletes, do you often go back to that experience and other experiences that you had as the young Don Carmen um, to kind of figure out how to how to get people past that moment, that moment of fear, or that moment of concern? Um, absolutely, it was one of the things that, you know, and whether it be a, a moment like that or even the night before, because I can relate to them like when you're struggling or if you've got something that's not working for you, it's the last thing you think about before you go to sleep and it's the first thing that pops into your head and, and the next day. So what I do is I put them in those places. I want you to be there in your hotel room because I tell them, I say, I know what you do. You stand in front of the mirror and work on your delivery. I know what you do. And then and you think about it all the time. And then you watch somebody else's delivery and you try something that they're doing. And, I, so that, and when I show them that I know what they're going through, they learn to trust that I know what I'm talking about. But then I got to, you know, the, the next step is to be able to give them coping skills for these things and to understand what, what to do when the anxiety hits because it's coming, because it's part of, what competitors deal with it's the it's the most prolific issue in all of professional baseball and i imagine most sports um, you know, you, but definitely baseball you talk about athletes dealing with anxiety jeff and i are ted lasso fans recent episode one of the characters got the yips and i've heard you talk in other interviews about the yips like the coaches are even afraid to say the word we've seen it happen with other people we sort of saw something like that happen here in Philadelphia with, with Ben Simmons, who now doesn't want to go to the free throw line to the point where he's passing the ball up so he doesn't get fouled. How do you address a situation like that uh, so that the athlete can get back to using the skills they have as opposed to thinking about what could go wrong when they try to use those skills? The first thing that has to happen is I have to show them that I'm not afraid of it. So the tone of my voice will mean everything also. And how easily I, I discuss what they're going through. Because everybody else is, I mean, they're going to give them physical things, do this, and, and, and they've tried all of these. And I tell them, I know what you've tried. You've tried, maybe I'll talk, you know, and I'm now talking about Ben. Maybe you've tried tucking your, your elbow under 
a little more or maybe put it out a little wider or maybe throw you know a little more arc on it or a little less and you try all of these things and maybe even you shuffle your feet or you know anything like that and none of them work and they they will work in practice but they don't work under fire because you're actually wishing it would fix itself you're wishing it would go away and then i let them understand by by that they understand that i get it and I'm, my guess is he it's the last thing that he thinks about every day and it's the first thing he thinks about in the morning and he hopes it's not going to happen and that hope of it not happening is debilitating so so but, how do you get past it i mean look i've been to to practice i've seen ben Simmons shoot threes and free throws and do them with good form. But for whatever mm -hmm. reason, he comes out onto the big stage and it goes away. And then when he misses that first one, as Jason pointed out, then he becomes so fearful of going to the line that it, it's, it's impacting everything else that he does to the point that he doesn't want to touch the ball. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, th and that's one of the things that I would bring up, too, is like, okay, and you're probably thinking game on the line, if it's close or whatever, they're trying to get back in the game, they're go you're, you're saying, please don't throw it to me, to the point where you almost want to come out of the game. So understanding that, you know, so, and I'm kind of, it's kind of like that, that, you know, I'm drowning in your, and you're describing the water, but I have to describe the water first. And then I let them know, I, can't, I know we're going to get to the other side of this. I've dealt with this countless times, and we always get to the other side. The only time it doesn't work is if you don't do it. So what we're going to do is to go back and look at what, you, you, what you're, you're now afraid of your own fear. The fear itself or the anxiety itself is not debilitating until you're afraid of it until you're trying to avoid it, or until you're wishing it weren't there. This is a storm you are in. You gotta hold the helm, as Cyrus would say, right? Anyone can hold the helm when the, storm, when the seas are calm. So what you gotta do is hold the helm, but you don't know how to do that because you're, ho you're hoping the storm will end, but it's only gonna get bigger. And, by, and it feeds on itself. That anxiety and fear feeds on itself. And the more you fight it, the stronger it becomes. So that's, so what we're going to do is look at what is your brain really doing? It was like, like a, that's an alarm system that goes off, you know, in a simple may, way. It's that, that anxiety is an alarm system. And it's like, well, I'm going to hear it. And now, so you look around for what is it that I'm supposed to look at? Right? So I'm looking at what I, I, oh, the, I'm, I have to shoot a free throw and I might, and everybody in this, everybody in the nation knows that I can't do it. What, that, 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 that I, that I'm collapsing in this situation. So, so the we, fear. We talk, about, we talk about everyone in the nation there and the, uh, the pressure. If I switch to another athlete on the world stage and how she handled things, Simone Biles, who basically, it mm -hmm. seemed like the yips in terms of, she called it the spins, where she couldn't locate yeah. where she was. How mm -hmm. she handled that mental health uh, challenge, how she stepped away and came back. Can you talk about that and the pressure that was on her as a member of a team there and individually representing her country 
to be able to take that step back and face the challenges she had? It's really hard for me to speak to that because I don't, um, I can, I can say if you don't have the ability or, or, or someone that can help you deal with it, then you do have to step back. And that's a, that's a difficult thing. And she's not just a part of the USA team. She was, is the greatest of all time. And, and one of the few people that there's no argument, right? In any sport, she is the greatest. So, so she's her having to do that and step back. Um, yeah, that's, that takes a lot of courage because she could just keep pounding away, which is what people do with the physical part of it. But if she's not prepared with the mental part, it's never going to change. And then, so, so with that, yes. Um, stepping back, if you are not, if you don't have, if you don't have the coping skills for these kind of, this kind of anxiety and dealing with it, um, then you have to back away from it. Now, the thing with Ben is I look at it and say, what you, what, what, what I want first, I let them know, like, you know, that you can shoot. You're actually really good at it. But, and I like to put, put it like a simple, you know, like your brain works, like um, I have a thinking brain and an athletic brain. Right. And the athletic brain is kind of that lizard the brain that can that the one that you don't have to think about how you walk. You don't have to think about that because you learned how to do it and you do it without thinking. And when you when you're shooting and somebody's crawling all over you and you throw it up, you don't you're not thinking about how to do it and you're great at it. But now I'm going to stand here with nobody on me and I have all this time, but I don't have I don't have a plan for the negative thoughts and the fear. And that's what we make a plan for. So what am I going to do with this? I'm not afraid of my fear. I'm not afraid of this storm. This is the beginning. That's well, the beginning. Yeah. And, 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 and it's, it's amazing to hear you go through that process. And as, as somebody that's not a public figure has to deal with it, it's a struggle enough to face the fear and get over it. What, what is it like? I mean, you've been on that stage. You've been in front of tens of thousands of people knowing millions of people are watching you in any given moment. Where We see with Naomi Osaka that she's encountered something similar. And what she's done is she's decided, okay, I'm going to take away some of, of those external factors by not doing press conferences and things like that. It, do, is that an effective way for people to do it as opposed to facing everything to face the thing that's right in front of you and then to try to eliminate the other distractions? I would not recommend it because what now what do I do if I still feel the anxiety? I haven't really dealt with it. I'm just trying to push it aside. I'm trying to get rid of anything that creates it, but this, but this game itself of tennis that she's playing and now every eye is on her and every, you know, she's, and so what if this then starts to slide away? What's my new plan? Take away more and take away more. And in fact, I'm not dealing with what's really going on in my head. I'm actually trying to pretend that there is, I mean, I'm going to, take these things away and, and hope 
that that the anxiety goes away. Rather than I'm going to learn how to deal with how do I respond to anxiety and what and this is kind of one of the I want to it's it, it it's the biggest factor in being able to go through this is learning how to deal with anxiety. And one of the things I, uh, I've dealt with a lot of players and I had a superstar who was making $30 million a year. Well, he was probably making 15 at that time. Um, called me one night and said he passed out on deck from anxiety, right? And, and he, was, he went down on his knees and then they got recovered enough to go to the plate and hope he didn't get hit. He said he couldn't see anything. The whole place was black. And, and I'd been working with him for a while with the, all the things that everybody talks about for working with anxiety. And those things work with small levels of anxiety and they work really well on the sofa, but they don't work out there. I've found they don't. And, and so, I, you know, I was... Um, and so, well, what happens? What would happen? And this, uh, it just popped into my head, right? And this is what would happen if you, instead of trying to get rid of it, you took it up. Instead of, if I'm a, an eight out of 10 in anxiety, what happens if I just, okay, let's just take it up. All right. And see what happens. And play up here. Because my brain wants to be up here, let's do it. And then you're not, and it's not accepting anxiety. It's knowing that it's coming and you're not afraid of it because I'm going to play up there. And I can play at any level I want. It's when you fight it, it becomes debilitating. That's when it, that's when it gets you. I'm not telling you you're not going to get anxious because you are. And, and that's part of the game, too. But how do I deal with it? Now, interestingly, this player and his wife thank me every time. Every time I talk to them, it's, you have absolutely changed our lives. Because now he's not anxious all day at home. He's not, and when anxiety comes, he, 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 there's no anger with it. It's just, let's take it up then. Let's, if I want, my brain wants to be up here, let's take it up here. Because think about what your brain is doing when you, when you are experiencing this anxiety. It's the fight or flight, right? The old fight or flight. So what is, your brain is doing is it's preparing you to be better at surviving, at, at fighting. So why then would it be debilitating your brain? Why would it do something that's the very, you would think would be the opposite, that would actually be, be debilitating? It's not. In fact, you actually, when you're there in that state, your reflexes are faster, you process information faster, and the studies show also that you see faster, which is but why would, then why would we fight it? And I want to let the player know at that point, it's part of what makes you great and you're fighting it and the fight is what's destroying you. So let's stop fighting it. So I did that with this player and he wound up being superstar making, I mean, he was already great, but 
but now I'm gonna have to go follow his superstars. life. Now I'm gonna have to go follow the superstars yeah. and see how they're doing. Tom, we could talk to you all day about this. We gotta run to a break. But seriously, thanks so much for helping raise awareness and, and understanding of, of some of what athletes go through. We really appreciate the time. You got it. All right. All right. Thank Jason, you so much. Jeff, see you again. Yeah. Take it easy. Thank you, Don. Jeff, why don't we hit the break? We'll have a quick commercial when we come back. We'll have Jamie Collins talk some college football. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. With college football at our front door, we're joined by Jamie Morris co-host of the M Zone on 1050 The Ticket in Michigan. Jamie, how you doing? I'm doing well. How you guys doing? We're doing great. The college football is here. What more can we ask? And people are actually at the stadium. You know, for somebody yeah. for somebody who for years got to experience 110,000 people at Michigan cheering you on and and then in the pros, what was it like for you to observe football games with no fans and now what do you think the the players are going through experiencing the fans coming back well it's a two-prong so um for the young young guys that came in as freshmen to play for the university of michigan and have an opportunity to play in far in front of the largest uh crowd in college football today it's a, it, it, it they didn't get a chance to experience it uh for the guys that had experienced it, it was probably a letdown for them because they're so used to using that crowd as a, as, as, as a pick me up, not that they needed a pick me up, but I mean, that is the, it is the greatest thrill of your life coming out of Michigan football tunnel, running onto the field and hearing in unison, the victors being, being sang. And you just sit, you, you observe that it is the most incredible feeling that you could ever have. You know, I'm a Rutgers boy, so I have to deal with Jeff singing that song a lot. Uh, so <laughs> just, just letting you know, I, I deal with that. But, you know, you talk about the feeling of running out on a tunnel or being in that stadium. At this time of year, things getting ready to kick off. I know you're in the middle of it with your own radio show. Do you miss being on the field? You know, I get that question a lot. Uh, if you asked me that probably 10, 15 years ago, sure, I, I, I do. But now... I'm uh, okay. I think that um, uh, I've had my time in the sun. You know what I'm saying? I've had my opportunity. I got a chance to play for one of the greatest college football coaches in the history of college football. I had a chance to play um, play with the biggest guys that I've ever uh, witnessed. And, you know, it, it was just – I have to look at my four years and – I'll compare them to anybody's at for any college, and you know it's second to none. So no, I I don't miss it. I w- do. I wish I could go back and play it again. Sure, but I you know hopefully I could correct the mistakes that I did along the way. <laughs> well, well, so Jamie, you may not miss it, but so my one of the reasons we wanted to have you on was to talk about going back in a time machine. And what would you have done 
or how different would college football be for people like you who did have the the recognition uh, playing at a big school, being the MVP of a bowl game, going to the pros later on? What would it have been like for you in the name, image, and likeness realm? And how would it have changed, if anyway, how would it have changed what decisions you made with regard to where you went to school and how different your experience would have been at school? I grew up loving the University of Michigan since I was eight, since, since I was eight years old. So I don't think I would have chose any other school with the, um, the NIL. But I, I will tell you that it would have been it would have been different because, you know, I'm a team player. I'm that kind of guy. I got there. uh, These guys. I got there, and I was 142 pounds. If you can believe that, I was in the best shape of my life. I was coming off a track. Um, I had got an invitation to the Olympic trials in 1984, and um, yeah, I thought I was a stud. But when I got to the University of Michigan, slowly but surely, did I lose all of that that uh, confidence because you're looking at guys that are six foot two playing running back that can run as just as fast as me and different things like that. But I had an opportunity, you know, you hear, you hear the, the expression, take advantage of all your opportunities. I had a high IQ to play, to play football. I understood the plays and I had three brothers that came before me. I was fortunate. I had three brothers that came before me that went on to play college football at the University of Syracuse, and they taught me a lot. They taught me the basics of football. Uh, It's really the terminology you need to learn because football has the same plays. They just call it something different, and you just need to learn the terminology. And I used that that, um, information that they gave me, and I I got a a chance to uh, catch up with the veteran players. So getting an opportunity – and becoming a named person, uh, yeah. But I would have made sure that the five guys in front of me, the the three guys on the outside of me, wide receivers, I made sure that my teammates enjoyed uh, making money just as I could. You, you, it, the, the the danger of this. It's a great opportunity, and it's it's about time that something like this happens. But the the danger of this is the the quarterback, the running back, the wide receiver, maybe the tight end. But everybody forgets the big, the big uglies in front of you. You can't forget those guys because they are the most important part of college football on an offense. If they're not well, doing and, their job, none of, us, none of the other guys could do their job. And you were a, a team leader, and you, you talk about the other players on the team – there's been some suggestion, including by coaches like Nick Saban, that this could create issues in the locker room between the haves and the have-nots. As someone exactly. who held that locker room leader role, how would you address those types of situations? Well, I would, I, I would bring up the idea of pooling money. I mean, and then distributing it out, making sure everybody gets a piece of the pie. Now, I, I mean, I'm not saying that if you're making if you're making a million dollars, an example. If you're making a million dollars, you don't need to you don't need to make a million dollars. You can make seven fifty, and that, if you're in college, if you get three hundred thousand, three fifty into the pot, you're still helping your your fellow your fellow teammates, 
You're making them happy. I mean, that's a lot of money. And um, it's just that you need to make sure everybody, as, as, as Coach would say, everybody's got to eat. So everybody gets a piece of that pie. And I would, I would advocate for that. I would have, we had committees on our, on our football team where, we, you know, it's always the seniors, juniors, sophomores, and freshmen. So we would make sure everybody had a piece, including, every, I mean, all the way down to the, um, the managers. you got to make sure everybody's part of, of the team. So, I mean, it is, it is, it is the most important thing you, you need to do is make sure everybody, because these are your brothers. These are the guys that got beside you when you had to do those early runs in the morning when you had to sprint when we had well they don't do two a days anymore but when we <laughs> had those two a days maybe sometimes three a days in ninety degree weather and that's how you a know, team is built over the summertime. Go yeah, ahead. but J- Jamie, that sounds great, and that's that's what a leader does, and that's what a team player does, is what you're suggesting. But what do you, you can't you can't mandate it. So what no, happens if can't. I'm just going to use a quarterback? What happens if a quarterback comes in and he gets $1.5 million and his parents and his family say, no, we're not sharing it. How do you, well, how do you deal with it? I mean, these are the practical problems that we're going to have now. I, I think it's I, a great I, idea to have the NIL. The question is, is how do you, how do you keep the locker room together in these situations? Well, he's just got to get, he, if he wants to be part of the team, I mean, look, when you when you choose your team, when you choose a college, when a young man or a young lady cho- chooses a college, they're choosing to be with a team. They met these athletes when they first got there, so it's 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 got to be bestowed upon them that when you come here, we come here. This is what we do, mom, dad, whoever you need to tell. This is what we do here. It's not, yeah, it's not mandated. You may not want to come here because here, this is what we do. Because we love one another. We're a family here. I know you have your, 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 your direct family and everything like that, but if you want to be a part of this program, this is what we do. And that's got to be explained. I, 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 you know, this is not a hard thing. Discipline is the most important thing when it comes to uh, college sports. If you have no discipline, then you have a bad team. So with that being said, every athlete understands what team rules are. And where the team rules are, and you find you look like I said, athletes will go and go. Look, I, I'll tell you, Nick Saban isn't the isn't the most favorite coach. I mean, if you ask players about Nick Saban, those guys that are in the NFL, yeah, they love Coach Saban. There, but when they were going through the hell, they didn't. They 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 did not like Nick Saban. Trust me, but they thank him now, just like we did. We thank Bo Schembechler for what he was a mean cuss back when I was a freshman, sophomore, a junior. But I learned what he was doing my, my, my senior year. I mean, it, it's part of your growing up. You know, well, you mentioned that, and I'm, I'm curious because we've sort of seen the change in college football through the years recently with the transfer portal. And mm-hmm. a lot of that tough love is, is sometimes interpreted, you know, a benching is I'm going to potentially go someplace else. Now you add name, image, and likeness on top of it. How do you think this is all going to impact with with student athletes trying to move around to what they view as the best opportunity for themselves, which may not be the best opportunity for the team that they've originally chosen? Well, look, the best thing that happened was was the um, transfer portal, and I, 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 you know what, I'm a fan of that too. 
I get it. I, I understand. When kids, you're 18 years of age, eight, 17, 18 years of age, making one of the most important decisions in your life. And you, you know what? You could go up, you could go to that college, have a great time. Two days of, two days of uh, uh, official visits cannot make four years. You've got, to you've got to do your own homework, too. See, that's what people think. These kids go on these official visits, come back and say, "Oh my God, they got to, they have they have uh, golden they have golden um, sidewalks and they got this, they got that, they got this." And yes, they're a very in, in, in passionate kids. But I did because I knew what kind of guy I was when I saw Michigan's locker room and everything like that. I went crazy. Oh my God! But my mother and father kept me grounded. They asked the questions about education. You got to have somebody in your family unit that is asking those tough questions because I'm not going to ask him. I'm, I'm 17, 18 years old. All I want to see is that damn stadium. I want to go to the basketball game. If it's basketball season on my visit, I want to go to the hockey game. And if that's my thing, I'm trying to get a, get a feel what the fans are like and different things like that, because I'm a very impressionable little kid, young man, but my mother and father, they, they looked at everything not that they said anything. They did ask questions about education and how important it was and what happens. And they were told about the Michigan experience and we're, we're the largest living alumni base, blah, 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 all of that. And they were told everything. So when we came back and we did the comparisons and we sat at, we sat at the dinner table and my parents had been, went through it three times because I had three brothers that went through it. So they kind of sat me down and told me what they thought, their impressions, and everything like that. And when I chose the University of Michigan and I said, I think, I'm go I, think I want to go to Michigan, I think my mother told me, you're my youngest. I don't want you to go. You, you would be better off at Boston College because I, I was living in Massachusetts at the time. We lived in a little small town called Air. That being said, I mean, if you think about the NIL, yeah, that would have made me popular in the state of Massachusetts and different things like that. Because I thought about this. Oh, I could have I could have cashed in and everything like that. But that's just the state of Massachusetts. If you make it at the University of Michigan, that's national recognition. You know, everybody knows you. Everybody knows Michigan. You, everybody knows that fight song. Everybody knows those helmets. So, you know, you look at that. And then the other colleges, Wisconsin. I looked at Wisconsin. I, you know, my mother and father loved Wisconsin because they were going to get me a job, a summer job, and they were going to do this and they were going to do that. And I said to them, it's not recognized like the University of Michigan. Nothing against Wisconsin, but I'm talking national stage. So, I thought in an NIL situation, I chose right. You know, if, 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 and, you know, I had the opportunity to play early. I had the opportunity. I kept, I kept my position as I got better and better. And as the, as the offense got better and better, we were running the ball a lot more. I mean, I figured, and I said, I say this to, and I do this, Jumbo Elliott and I talk all the time. We talk. Almost every day. That's my yes. <laughs> we talk about the NIL. He's like, we could have cleaned up, Jay. Me and you, we could have cleaned up and everything. I mean, I remember this, this this photo that I took with Jumbo, me standing on a on a stool and putting my shoulder on his uh, my my arm on his shoulder. That's an iconic picture. And I said, we could have used nowadays. That, we could have used that picture selling cars and selling toothpaste and all kinds of things. You could have been things, autographing you know? that places. Yeah, you'd have made exactly. it. Exactly. 
Yeah, but Jumbo would have needed a lot more money to to pay for his groceries than you did. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to tell you this. When my mom, my mom came to games, she didn't really go to the game. She made food. So when my mom would come in uh, on on Friday and Saturday, and everybody, all the offensive linemen knew because she fed them. They came over on Sunday. We had a big Sunday breakfast, and they we sat around watching Michigan replay to see if uh, the old man was going to be angry because that's your, you know, he shoots that. Um, at night, at the uh, Saturday night, on Sunday morning, it debuted before we go down to watch Phil, and he kind of gives you hints of what what he's going to say to the team. So we used to watch that all the time together. <laughs> One of your other te- teammates uh, is now the athletic director at the mm-hmm. University of Michigan. Manual. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've ha- we had him on the show when the the transfer portal first started, and he mm-hmm. talked to us about some of the pitfalls of. of the transfer portal and sometimes kids not you know not everybody who goes to college is as fortunate as you in, in that you had a good family that you had uh brothers that had already gone through it including joe mm-hmm. who played for the giants mm-hmm. you know you know so you have a lot of these people that are hangers on and then the the dreaded boosters which isn't always a bad word but sometimes it can be and they don't have the best interests of these young you know athletes in, in 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 their minds. So when you have something like the NIL, in, in addition to that, and you see what's going on at places like Miami, where somebody gave money to the entire team. Yeah. How, what do you do as an athletic director to, to somehow control this and make sure that it doesn't get out of, out of control? Because right now it's the wild west. There are no rules no. for any of that. Exactly. The worst thing that happened is, is that the athletic directors took a back seat. They didn't get involved. And I'm not dogging out my, my, my guy Ward, but his whole profession. I mean, they all sat back and watched. And maybe they couldn't do anything. Maybe the university didn't want them to do anything. But you got to get involved. These kids need guidance, leadership. And what they did is a, is a damn shame. Shame on them for what they did. Because it is the Wild West now, and what the, and, and what they'll get, they will they they will they will reap the rewards of what these kids can do now. I'm sorry, they shouldn't they shouldn't have let these kids you know come out until they had rules and regulations. You can always change rules and regulations as you both as you both know. But if things are established now, you're going to go to court. Kids can take now. These young people can take take universities to court and say, "Hey, we did it. We did it when we first came out, and this is. The, I mean, we didn't have a problem with this, and why do they have a problem with this? And they're going to basically win because you had no regulations or rules before this came out. You just said, "Hey, like you said, you just said, hey, have at it, boys. Go take care of it. You got this. Is, this is we've got nil now. Go do what you do. Bring it to us." And guess what? We'll take a look at it. We're pretty much going to sign sign you through as long as it's not alcohol, gambling, or pornography. I mean, well, really? And that seems to be the guidelines. <clears throat> as long as it's not yeah. one of those three things, it's like, all right, go ahead. Well, that's that's an NFL thing. That's the that's that's an NBA thing. That's a, I mean, they just I mean, you know, that's basic. I mean, they just took the basics and said, okay, you can't do this. But they have done something. The University of Michigan has said you can't. You have to come to us and pay us 
for a license fee to use the block if. So kids can't use the block if. You, but I play for Michigan, but you can't. I can't use the block if. But you have to pay for that block if. You have to. You have to. You have to do like any other vendor that wants to use that block if. You have to pay for it. Doesn't seem fair though. And they'll argue that too. I play for you. I mean, come I'm on. sure. I was going to say, I'm sure that they'll argue that that they're on the field playing for it. Why can't they use the photo that they took? But I did want to ask you sort of about the larger issue of mm-hmm. the NCA sort of leading from behind as usual. You know, you have the NIL issue. <laughs> you have realignment now with Texas and Oklahoma going to the SEC, the Pac-12, Big Ten, and ACC with a handshake. The Big 12's looking for more people, and apparently the whole thing's thrown the college playoff expansion into doubt. Your thoughts on the overall state of college football right now? Well, like you said, the NCAA is doing its usual thing, leading by, from behind. Look, they I, I guess having court cases and losing court cases and losing in the Supreme Court and all of those things, I guess it's true. They have a monopoly, and they've always had a monopoly, and they got exposed. So now why not go and work with these young men, young people, why not go and allow these young people to work together? I mean, I, I, I get it, but if the NCAA and the universities in general, if you're coming to a university, universities have rules and regulations. You can't tell them what to do. I can't tell them. But student athletes can't tell them what to do. Universities can abolish sports if they want to. They don't want to because that's a lot of money. But that being said, it's the fear of it. So kids will listen to these universities. But it's like you said, they're leading from behind. They're afraid of being taken to court and losing again. And the problem is, if you're afraid, it's an antiquated system. That's what the NCAA is. You've got to lead by example. Universities have got to come together and vote on this and vote in um, a a good director of, of the NCAA someone who understands college athletics and young people, what young people want. And you've got to have boards with young people on them. The kids have got to be able to have their say at the table. The problem is you like the money and you don't have to pay the kids. That's, that's, let's be honest. This is all about money. This is all about money and who gets it. And they, they, they've had it for years where they didn't nah, have a- Jamie, they're amateurs. They're student athletes. Come on. We got to go along <laughs> with this here. <laughs> I think that went away when we decided to have the dream team go out and slaughter all these teams. Remember that in 92, that the amateurism went away a long time ago. And I'm sorry. We, we've got to get away from that. I know I, I get it. I get it. They don't want to have a payroll of an excess of this and that. Look, you have a standard pay throughout the colleges. Agree with it. And you don't call it salary. You call it, what do you call it? You just call it uh, expenditures. Or you call them, what do we used to get? You could call it a stipend. You can call yeah, it whatever you want. What you I mean, it. you call it whatever you want, whatever you need to call it to make it sound like to the fan base that, hey, they're playing for us. Or they're going for the blue. Yes, we're, we're all together here. No, you get a nice stipend. You pay the stipend. You, you know it, uh, Alabama plays the highest stipend in the country. Everybody knows that. 
Well, look, we, we could probably talk all day about these <laughs> issues. <laughs> but the good news is there is college football. And, yeah. and there well, are assuming, great... assuming the water goes down at Rutgers. Yeah, uh, right. Uh, and, and so, <laughs> you know, before we let you go, one, how excited are you and how optimistic, I, my fingers are crossed, are you that Michigan is going to turn it around this year? And what do you see of the rest of, let's just do the Big Ten, because I'm sure that's what you focus on on your show. Um, I'm very excited about the college football season starting. I'm excited for people going to the stadium. I'm nervous about people going to the stadium. Uh, I like that the university established a mask mandate that goes into the stadium. When you get to your seats, you can and cannot, or you don't have to take off your mask. But if you're moving around the stadium, you have to wear a mask. I do like that. That being said, um, I think it's great for college football. I think college football will be will, will benefit immensely. Do I think that we're going to have a hundred thousand fans at every home game and things like that? I think you're going to be. You, you got. I, I get a lot of alum alumnus that that contact me and we text with one another and everything like that. I think I think we're going to have probably between eighty. 80 to 85,000 people. It would be, it, it will be announced that we had a hundred thousand over a hundred thousand fans <laughs> in the stadium, but I don't well, the think band, the band counts. Remember, <laughs> I know the band counts, the, the, the players that don't play the uh, vendors that are making your hot dogs and hamburgers. Anybody Jeff watching at home on his couch, that counts too. I'm excited for the Big Ten, and in answer to your question about the University of Michigan, I think we needed to make a turn. And Jimmy, Jim Harbaugh, who was the was, was my quarterback for three years, I mean, I think he he got his mind right. I think he he brought in a very aggressive staff, a younger staff, someone that that got him fired up again, and he. He doesn't have a bunch of yes men behind him anymore. I'm sorry, that's just my opinion. But look, we we need go getters. We need guys that want to be head coaches someday, and they are. They're going to get into these kids, and they're going to. They're, they're, they're not going to be nice guys about it. They're going to tell you what they need, and if you don't deliver, we'll we'll replace you and put you put the next player in. And that's what you want. You, and that's what they need. So. I think Michigan's going to be a big surprise. A lot of people are not um, as excited as I am, but I think you'll get a lot of surprise games. Michigan, look, I said Michigan, it's, they're either going to beat Penn State or they're going to beat Wisconsin. I'd like them to beat both, but I, I see an eight, I see an eight and four, nine and three team. They could get the nine if they if, if they play their butts off, but they're going to have to play. And, and the real question I, is, can I, they beat the Big Ten powerhouse of Rutgers? That's the real. <laughs> well, Giannis, Jeff uh, loves when I try to push Rutgers. Is like yeah, I was Jamie. I was at I was at the seventy-seven nothing game. So, <laughs> Jamie, not only was he at the seventy-seven nothing game, he was texting me at every score to remind me that they had scored again. So, not only did I get the ESPN alert, I got Jeff's text to let me know how few fans were in the stadium and how many points Michigan had put up. It was great. Oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, I think John you know, Runyon gave you some Jabril crap about that afterwards, too. That day by <laughs> himself. Yeah, story of my life as a Rutgers fan, but we're hoping for better this year, Jamie. <laughs> and you will get better. I think I think Greg Schiano's got them pointing in the right direction. He's hungry. He, we know he knows how to recruit. So I think he does a good job, and I think you'll be – I think everybody will be impressed with uh, what he's done. 
See, well, Jeff, I, I have to leave it there. It's, it's a positive note about Rutgers to end the show with two Michigan men. Yeah, and, and, and Jamie, we really want, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about college football and all that's going on at the beginning of the season. You can catch Jamie as co-host of the M Zone on 1050 The Ticket in Michigan. Jamie, good luck and go blow. Thank you. It was great talking to you. Jamie, we got a uh, uh, we got a guest on Jeff that said good things about Rutgers. Uh, I should just stop the show now forever, right? He, he was just being kind. He was humoring me. Yeah. I know you think he's a little Pollyannish in the. Like, no, no, no. That's your word. I I, I don't use that. Word. My word of describing it, but you don't believe that players would necessarily buy into giving a portion of their name, image, and likeness. Money. No, I look. I'm, it's a team sport. He's very old school. Um, which is not a bad thing. I mean, I some people say go old school in a bad way. I say old school in a good way uh, because I'm old. I know. Um, so I'll let you, I'm not even letting you take that shot. But I I don't think it's practical in some situations. You have you have people you've now heard getting a million dollars plus before they ever step on campus. Do you think that that the older players that are already at the university are going to contact this kid? Uh, and say, hey, by the way, we're putting it all of the money you're getting or part of it in a pot for other people. And that the parents and the people that are advising that kid are going to say, yeah, sure. Okay. It, 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 it may work for people when they're there and, and our teammates. That's not going to happen. There's no way. 30 seconds, fun conversations with both he and Don Carmen, completely mm -hmm. different angles, but eye-opening. Don was so compelling. Uh, it, it really was, I mean, it opened my eyes as to, as to how you deal with these. And there was so much more to ask him about. Well, we'll talk about it more next week when we come back. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Discover spirituality for everyday living with religion and inspiration with Cantor Scott Borsky. Celebrant educator, chaplain, and speaker, Cantor Scott Borsky will open your eyes to the joy and meaning in our everyday lives with a generous dose of good humor. Cantor Borsky can help everyone discover inspiration in the everyday moments of their religion, background, tradition, and beliefs. It's 30 minutes well spent. Religion and inspiration with Cantor Scott Borsky, Sunday mornings at 730 on WWDB. Be sure to catch Dining on a Dime, a total foodie show right here, 6 p.m. Tuesdays. Chef. Gene Blum, IB Foodie 2, culinary educator. Amaris Pollock, I'm the food photojournalist. Matt Maratea doing booze and brews. Every Tuesday, 6 p.m. drive time, Dining on a Dime. Dining on a 